Now, last Sunday we read Psalm 22, which is the psalm that Jesus quoted as he hung on the cross. As he hung there, Jesus shared that agonizing scream of verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he hung there, Jesus felt abandoned by God, experiencing every ounce of the physical pain of crucifixion, along with bearing the weight of God's righteous judgment for our sin. And while the first 21 verses of Psalm 22 sound hopeless, the psalm ends on a much different note. David ends by writing about worship, confidence, and deliverance from suffering. So as Jesus hung on that cross, stripped, mocked, and pierced, it's safe to say that Jesus knew the rest of Psalm 22. He knew that God would not forsake him forever. And three days later, he was vindicated as he rose from the grave. But the truth remained that Jesus would have to wait for that deliverance. The same way Israel had to wait for him, the Messiah, to finally come. The same way that we as believers in Jesus today are waiting for him to return in power and glory. That's Psalm 22. But then two weeks ago, we talked about Psalm 110, a psalm mainly about royalty. That's the one where David prophetically refers to Jesus as my Lord. And as we've mentioned over the last few weeks, it's ironic that Jesus is consistently referred to as a king in the New Testament. It's ironic because he wasn't born like a king. We remember that every Christmas. He never lived like a king. And he certainly didn't get a royal funeral. And yet every single Christmas and every Sunday morning throughout the year, Christians from all over the world get together and worship Christ as our king. Why? Well, maybe today's psalm, Psalm 2, can help us better understand why. So open up your Bibles to Psalm 2. Feel free to use the Bibles that we provide if you didn't bring one, and take a Bible home with you if you don't own one. But before we read, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for who you are and for what you do. Thank you for your kindness to us, your mercy, your grace, all the ways that you take care of us that we see and that we don't see. Father, thank you for this time we have to worship you, especially on this day, Christmas Eve. It's a perfect reminder to us when we have church on Christmas Eve that Christmas really is about your son. And so I pray that you'd remind us of that again tonight and tomorrow and in the days ahead as we celebrate. So, Father, be with us this morning. I pray that our worship would be honoring to you and honoring to your son. We love you, we praise you, we ask this all in your son's name. Amen. Well, many pastors, scholars, and theologians believe that Psalms 1 and 2 actually go together. And they serve as an introduction of sorts to the entire collection of Psalms. Both Psalms warn about the inevitable judgment that comes with opposing God. Both Psalms use the phrase, the way, to talk about the righteous life that we are called to pursue. Psalm 1 begins with the phrase, blessed is the man, 
And then Psalm 2 ends with the phrase, Blessed are all who. Yet in spite of the likelihood that these two psalms go together, you'll find far more books and Bible studies and sermons and devotions on Psalm 1 than you will on Psalm 2. Psalm 1 seems to be much more famous. And one theologian simply observes that we love Psalm 1, but often ignore Psalm 2. Well, we won't ignore it today. So, reading Psalm 2, starting in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Well, Psalm 2 appears to break down into four pretty neat sections. The first you could label the nation's plans. We see that in verses 1 through 3. The second section would be verses 4 through 6. God's response to these nations. The third section is verses 7 through 9. God appointing the king, the identity of the king, and the role of the king. And in the fourth and final section, verses 10 through 12, you could label that words to the wise. So let's look briefly at each one. Starting in verses 1 through 3, the plans of the nations. Well, simply put, the nations of the earth in Psalm 2 oppose God. And more specifically, their mighty rulers gather together and join forces against God himself. Now, mostly they just complain. They just talk. But they are opposed to God. And why are the nations so bent out of shape against God? Well, according to David in Psalm 2, they want independence, autonomy. They don't want to answer to anyone. They don't appreciate God or his anointed, whoever that is, exercising authority over them. Now, this is nothing new in the pages of Scripture, of course. All the way back to Adam and Eve, mankind has rebelled against God's rule. We see it in Genesis chapter 11 when the people of Babel long to make a name for themselves. They want power and glory of their own. They don't want to submit to God's rule. We see it in spectacular fashion in the book of Exodus. In Egypt, Pharaoh repeatedly refuses to submit to God's authority. He repeatedly refuses to let God's people go out of captivity. 
And as a result, he brings great harm to both himself and his nation at large. And then, of course, there are the stories in the book of Daniel, where God uses kings and nations for his purposes when he sees fit. But when they arrogantly rebel against him, those kings and those nations will fall. It's nothing new in the pages of Scripture or in the pages of history outside of Scripture. Many kings and rulers don't like answering to God. And some of them make direct attempts to thwart God's rule. But then we get to section two, verses four through six. How does God respond to these kings and these rulers? Well, Psalm two tells us that he laughs at them. He laughs at them. He laughs because they're fools if they think that they can oppose him and win. Just ask Adam and Eve how their rebellion worked out. Ask the people of Babel and ask Pharaoh and ask Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon about that. We see the same idea in Psalm 37, a psalm we read a few weeks back, verses 12 and 13. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. Ultimately, these rulers and kings are no threat to God's power. But God doesn't just laugh at these rulers, these nations. He does something else. He appoints another king over them. This is the one referred to as God's anointed in Psalm 2. The Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. And the Greek word used when this psalm is quoted in the New Testament is Christ. That may be significant. And then section 3, verses 7 through 9, we learn more about this king. Well, this anointed one is none other than God's son. In the ancient world, it was common for the king of some nation to be referred to as the son of that nation's God. But they usually meant that the king served as God's representative. He acted with God's authority. But the people didn't actually believe that a king was begotten by God, right? They didn't actually believe that this king was the very son of God. That would be crazy, right? But this king is different. Because this king really is the son of God. He will judge and rule over all the nations with a rod of iron, including their rebellious leaders. His authority will be undeniable. Whether the nations like it or not, they will have to answer to him. And then finally, verses 10 through 12, words to the wise. Pretty simple, really. The psalm ends with the command, the guidance, the teaching to worship God and honor his son. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, is what the psalmist says. Because those who take refuge in him, those who worship and honor and love him, can rest secure. Now, it's good to know a bit more about Psalm 2. And you can maybe see a few small glimpses of Jesus in Psalm 2. But more specifically, what does Psalm 2 have to do with Christmas? 
Well, think back for a moment to the story of Jesus' birth. When Jesus is born, King Herod hears some wise men talking about a king who has come to the earth. The king of the Jews, no less. Some may even refer to this king as the Messiah or the Christ. So King Herod gets a little bit nervous. Kings tend to be paranoid in the pages of history. But really, Herod is just following in the footsteps of so many rulers before him. Rulers who oppose the authority of God, who gather themselves against the Lord and his anointed, like those rulers we read about in Psalm 2. So Herod immediately takes steps to eradicate this supposed king. First, he tries to trick those wise men into confirming where Jesus is born. But after they see Jesus, the wise men are told in a dream to sever their ties with Herod. Go home by a different route. When that first plan fails, King Herod then takes more drastic measures. He has all the male children around Jesus's age, from Jesus's neck of the woods, killed. You can't be too careful, right? But that plan fails, too. This time, Jesus's adoptive father, Joseph, is warned in a dream to flee to Egypt. So at Jesus's birth, we're already seeing Psalm 2 play out. We see that Herod can't thwart the plan of God. We can almost picture God laughing at Herod's attempts, like Psalm 2 says. Because whether Herod likes it or not, whether the other rulers and kings of the world like it or not, whether you and I like it or not, in the pages of Scripture, and as we remember at Christmas, a king, who has, been, a king has been born who is greater than me and greater than you and greater than Herod. And he was born in Bethlehem. Now, Psalm 2 would continue to echo in other areas of Jesus' life. At Jesus' baptism, God says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Sounds similar to Psalm 2. Later in Jesus' life at the Transfiguration, God says the same thing. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But this time he adds, listen to him. Now perhaps these echoes of Psalm 2 are just a coincidence. Well, not according to Jesus' earliest followers. If you look forward in the book of Acts, specifically chapter 4, Peter and John go out and preach the truth about Christ to anyone who will listen. But the religious leaders have them arrested, intimidated, threatened, beaten, and then eventually released. And when Peter and John are released, they pray this prayer found in Acts chapter 4, verse 24. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. That's Psalm 2. Verse 27. For truly in this city... Jerusalem, 
There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So long after that first Herod's failed attempt to kill Jesus as a baby, another king named Herod stepped onto the scene. This second Herod joined forces with another ruler by the name of Pontius Pilate. These two kings gathered together against the Lord. And against his anointed, just like Psalm 2 says they would. But this time, it appears as though the earthly rulers have actually won. Jesus is dead. Who's laughing now, God? But according to Peter, even though Herod and Pilate didn't know it at the time, they were acting in accordance with God's plan from the very beginning. They were not cunningly thwarting God's plan. They were cluelessly fulfilling it. Later in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul makes the same argument. And he quotes Psalm 2 as well. We see it in Acts chapter 13, verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God has promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The point is that the rulers opposed to God and opposed to his anointing all the way back to Herod when Jesus was just a baby. They didn't understand that God was using them to accomplish his purposes, to save sinners like us. They thought they had won. But when Jesus rises from the dead, God gets the last laugh. So the old rule still holds true. There's only one true God. And he has appointed one true king. And no earthly ruler, neither me nor you, can thwart his plans. Pharaoh learned it the hard way. So did Nebuchadnezzar. So did the first Herod when he tried to kill the baby Jesus. And so did the second Herod along with Pontius Pilate. But there's still one ruler that we haven't talked about 
today. One ruler left who still opposes God and his son. One ruler left that Jesus came to conquer. Now, we've read it more than once over the past few weeks, but it's a Christmas text if there ever was one. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. After the fall of Adam and Eve, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis 3, we see that promise that someday a child will be born. And someday that serpent from the Garden of Eden will be defeated once and for all. That's at the very beginning of the Bible. But turn to the very end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 12, specifically. There's this somewhat bizarre vision in Revelation chapter 12 where John sees a woman give birth to a child and there's a dragon trying to kill this child. It all sounds a little bit weird. But then in Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, we read, She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Sounds like Psalm 2, doesn't it? Well, Revelation tells us that this woman would give birth to a child, and this child would defeat this awful dragon in John's vision. But who is the woman? Who is the dragon? Who is the child? Well, if you just stick to verses 1 through 6, it might be a little bit hard to tell. But we do read that whoever this child is, the dragon feels threatened by him. And we do read that this child will rule the nations with a rod of iron, just like Psalm 2 said. But then we pick up in Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. So who's the dragon in Revelation 12? It's that ancient serpent. The one talked about in Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The one whose head Jesus would crush. That ancient serpent is thrown down, and God's people are saved. 
God's kingdom is established through none other than the authority of the child born to that woman. God's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. Worldly rulers stand no chance against God and his anointed. And not even Satan, the king and ruler of hell, can thwart God's purposes. And we remember that at Christmas. This king who would crush that ancient serpent's head has been born. The rulers of this world and Satan himself tried to stop Jesus from ever making it out of that manger. But they failed. They did manage to crucify him as an adult. And for three days, it looked like they had won. But God got the last laugh. Of course, it's true that the rulers of this world and Satan himself can still make life hard for God's people. But his time is short. In the big scheme of things, they can't thwart the plan of God. And for that, God and his anointed son are worthy of our worship and worthy of our honor. Now, some things never change. Even now, there are kings who long to be the ones in charge. There are rulers who long to burst the bonds and break the cords of God's authority over them. Satan is still making war on God's people. But we celebrate the fact that the one true king has been born. And that his victory is secured through the cross and the resurrection. And Satan's final defeat is guaranteed. So at Christmas, we worship Christ the King. God's anointed. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus. We take refuge in him as the blood whose lamb was shed on the cross that the book of Revelation talks about. We take refuge in him, knowing that one day he will return and rule the nations with a rod of iron. We take refuge in him, the way Psalm 2 instructs us to. And blessed are we indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your king has come. That he has been born that he has lived and he has died and he has risen. Thank you that we don't have to wonder whether or not your people will win in the end. We don't have to just hope and be cautiously optimistic that maybe things will turn out right when it's all over. We know for sure that you win in the end. We know for sure that Satan will be defeated. We know for sure that we will be saved. And it's all because your son came in the form of a baby. That he was born of a virgin. That he fulfilled the very purpose, the very plan that you had from the beginning. Thank you that the promise of Genesis 3, that someone would come and Crush the head of that serpent once and for all. That's not just a hope. That is a promise that has been fulfilled. So, Father, this Christmas, as we remember the manger, 
as we remember that baby. I pray that we would keep in mind that that baby we worship is a king. He is your anointed, your ruler. So, Father, I pray that we would worship him with all the worship that we owe him. That we would worship him with every ounce of our being, every ounce of blood that pumps through our veins. That we would give it to the honor and glory of your son who has saved us. We love you. We praise you. We thank you for Christ, our King. We ask all these things in his name. Amen.